Good morning, church. Some of you may not know me. My name is Ken Eicher, and as Lauren mentioned, my wife, she said, Bill is out of town visiting his son in Tennessee, so I get a chance to give you God's word today. And, um, you know, I'm just, I was just, while we were worshiping, I was just looking out, and it just blows me away that up here we have a drummer that's playing with one arm because he wants to serve, and we've got a kid back there on video serving at 12 years old. And so that is, they, people want to say they're the church of tomorrow. They're the church of today. That's, that's, that's awesome, guys. And it just makes me happy. So there's a get out of jail free card for my son. So, <laughs> so. but as we said this morning, um, Lauren said today is Advent. And it's the time that we prepare ourselves for the celebration of the birth of Jesus. And just before Jesus was born, people were preparing their hearts to this coming Messiah King that would come and redeem them. And they were waiting and anticipating. And we're also in a second advent as we're waiting on Christ's return. And we're, we're anticipating. And just in both cases, he promises he will. And most churches will do an advent season coming up, leading up to... Uh, Christmas, and some of you may have Advent calendars where you open a little door or something, you know, every day leading up to Christmas, and you have that anticipation about what's going to happen. And I'm excited because we're going to talk about the birth of Jesus, but this series I'm excited about because it takes a little bit of a different turn because the entire Bible, just like a compass, when you get a compass out, no matter where you turn, it points to true north. The entire Bible anticipates this Messiah King, and it, and it talks about it. And our story of the coming of Jesus just doesn't start in the New Testament and end with a baby in a manger. There's whispers, little sprinklings of the Christmas story throughout the Bible. And that's what we're going to explore today, is the title of this sermon series is These Unexpected Places That You Find the Story of Jesus. And so we're going to go back to the beginning, the beginning, and go to Genesis 3, 1 through 15. It's, you want to follow along in your Bibles, on your electronic devices. It will not be on the screen because it's rather long, but I'm just going to read it to you. Genesis 3, 1 through 15. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say... You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What a wicked half-truth that is. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then their eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from him. And the Lord God 
They hid from him in the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, saying, Where are you? He answered, I'm, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike at his heel. Wow, the story of Jesus and the story doesn't begin in a manger, but it begins in the garden. This is the first glimmer church that we have of the gospel. Because it's kind of like a two-act play if you're reading this story. If you walk into a two-act play at at intermission, you wouldn't know what's going on because you weren't to to hear all the characters leading up to that point. And if you were there from the beginning and you left at intermission you wouldn't know how the story ended. And it's kind of like a thrilling mystery story when you read the Bible, but it's not much of a mystery when you read it. It's about a battle between good and evil. Listen to what it says in 1 John 3. It says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. That's the reason Jesus dawned flesh in that manger in Bethlehem. And Jesus puts on flesh to destroy the works of the devil. The battle that we're engaging here is about sin. And so we start today in this story to kind of give us a glimpse of the Christmas story where the battle begins. And we're going to look at where how sin enters the world in the first place. Now, you know, if you read about Genesis in chapter 3 that I read, this church is a historical event because it determines the destiny, the sad destiny of humankind. That's kind of crazy and mind-blowing to think of it like that. But before time, there was God. Then he created the world, and he created everything in it for his glory, And he made it for us to know and trust him. And before we even get to chapter 3, if you read Genesis, like in chapter 2, it'll say God lit the darkness. He saw that it was good. He filled the emptiness. God created all things beautiful and delightful. Then God created man in his image. Then Eve was formed from man. God gave them everything in the garden to enjoy. But he gave them one simple test, one simple command. It was a test of their trust and their obedience to him. Would they believe in in God's word that he had spoken to them? And would they put their trust in his plan for them? Kind of sounds familiar because it applies to us today too. We have God's word with us. Are we going to believe what it says? Are we going to trust it? Are we going to trust in God's plan for our own lives? See, church, what was online for Adam and Eve is online for us today. Are we going to believe and trust God? 
And so Adam and Eve had all this goodness in the garden, all this beauty. Then the serpent appears. Now, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, or maybe you revisited Genesis for the first time, it's a little confusing. This serpent is real, but not ordinary. We don't have all the info yet of who he is, but as we continue to read the Bible over and over again, we meet this certain serpent, Satan. We meet him again and again. Look what it says in Revelations 12:9. The great dragon was hurled down, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to earth and his angels with him. This is what we're confronted with in chapter 3. Evil comes on the scene into the world. And the Bible wants to make it very clear that evil is just not something, poof, that happens. Uh, it's too bad. We have, we have shootings. It's too bad that there's kidnapping and sex trafficking. It just happens. You know, terrorist attack. No, they don't just happen. There's evil in this world. And this is where it begins. We're dealing with an intelligent, evil being described as a serpent. And his job, church, is to hinder and destroy the works of God's kingdom by any means possible. So the serpent, he asked Eve a question. This is what he asked her. He said, did God really say you must not eat from any trees in the garden? And Eve responds, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you'll die. Now wait, did God really say the touching part? She added to God's command, made it even more stronger than it ought to be, because God says in Genesis 2.17 not to eat of the tree, but he didn't say anything about touching it. So he, she warps the word of God a little bit. And so what was the serpent trying to do here? He was trying to tempt Eve with a distrust of God. He was trying to tempt her to doubt the word that God had spoken. And he was asking her to question, question the goodness of God. And church, this still happens today. And what I mean is, did you ever read God's word in your quiet time? Or maybe you were sitting in church like this and heard it read to you and you know you feel it tugging on your heart and the servant just gets in there and says, well, he doesn't really mean that. We kind of water it down for ourselves. We, we water it down to make it, you know, we're, we're not fully trusting it. That was then. And as the serpent is trying to say to Eve and he tries to say to us, God's depriving you of something really awesome. That's why he doesn't want, want you to do it. That's why God's setting up these boundaries. You're not going to have true happiness in these boundaries. And so the serpent goes after Eve's sight. He goes after her hunger. He goes after her intellect. Look what it says in Genesis 3, 5. God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. And like I said earlier, what a wicked half-truth that was. And then in Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw the fruit of the tree, for it was good. So God had spoken to her. She knew that. But what does she do? She heard about it. She sees the tree before her. And this made an appeal to her eyes. She's looking at it. Wow, this thing is good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. And it's also a desire for gaining wisdom like God. Church, we're not to be like God. 
it's not for us to determine what's good and evil. It's not for us to say, this is good, this is bad. This is for God. And we're not to be like God in any means. We're to humble ourselves before God. But it appealed to her intellect. It appealed to her emotions. And she desired for things the way she wanted them. See, what happens here is the lie that she heard was more appealing than the word of God. So she ate it. Let's not forget about Adam. He was right there beside her. She lets, she eats and she lets, leads him to eat the apple and he eats. He also chooses to disobey God's clear command. And he listened to a lie that there was not going to be any consequences. You know, church, this is always Satan's lie to us, that there's no consequences when we live beyond God's boundaries, beyond God's plan. That's his number one lie. Eve listened to the serpent. Adam listened to Eve. But no one listened to God. And we try to convince ourselves that nothing bad's going to happen when we do this. We try to convince ourselves that it's going to be okay. And the serpent problem promised Eve that her eyes would be open if she ate from this tree. And like I said, half right, but not open to the delights of being like God. They were open to the awareness now of their guilt and their shame. Genesis 3.7 says, The eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and made coverings for themselves. They saw themselves in a different light now after they deliberately sinned against God. They were naked. Of course they were naked. But now they noticed it. Why? Why did they notice it? Because, church, sin changes everything. They were now exposed So they hid from God. They were conscious of their guilt. That's what the nakedness is a symbol of. It's not just about they were naked. It's a symbol that they were conscious of their guilt. They had sin in rejecting God's word and disobeying God, and and now they rejected it for following their own desires. So what did they do? They ran and hid. Genesis 3, 8 and 9 say, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? This is kind of pathetic when I I read that because they sewed fig leaves together and put them around their loins because they acted if nakedness was the only issue here. This is the only problem. If we cover up, we'll be good. As I said, it's a symbol of their guilt. They're hiding because they decided to break communion with God. And now what have they had done? They had nowhere to go. They kind of knew that they were going to be banished. There was going to be a punishment coming. And they had nowhere to go. But what did they? What have they done? Paul tells us in Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They believed the servant rather than the Word of God. They chose to bow before what God created, rather than the creator of the universe. 
Now they exchanged the beauty and intimacy that they had in the garden. They exchanged it with brokenness and isolation now. So God looks for them. And we're reluctant a lot of times to go to God when we sin because probably we're afraid that God's going to reveal our sin and talk to us about it. But God doesn't do this out of this harsh judgment and finger pointing. He does it out of grace and mercy that he exposes our, our sin. He exposes our sin that he might cover it. He reveals our sin to us that he might forgive it. So God calls to them. Genesis 3, 9, the second half. He says, where are you? Now, it's not because God's phone didn't have good signal and he couldn't get a hold of them. It wasn't because of that. God had all the information. He knew where they were. But he looked for them after they disobeyed because that's who God is. He loved them even though that they disobeyed him. Isn't that true what he does for us? If he didn't do that for us, if he didn't look for us when we disobeyed, when we rebel, what hope would we have? When we rebel against God and we choose our own ways and we know it, God still comes and looking for us because that's who God is. If, we, if he didn't do that, we would be hopeless. So after he confronts him, he gets the story out of him. Now he curses the serpent. He says in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. And he will crush your head and you will strike at his heel. Battle lines are drawn now. Because now there's a conflict between the one who will crush your head and the one who's going to strike at the heel. This is a great conflict because it's the underlying part of the whole Bible. And if you go through the Bible after this story in Genesis and continue on the next couple pages, you're going to see that sin entered this world and there's always something going on that Satan's involved in. Cain kills his brother Abel. A few chapters later, the wickedness of humanity results in a great flood. Then once they get set up again, the people build the Tower of Babel, trying to build a tower to heaven to be almost, in an essence, godlike. And if you keep reading, the Bible is leading us somewhere. It's leading us. The part of the Bible where it says, where God says, He will crush your head. Satan's agenda is always to make sure that he tries to get rid of the he. That he doesn't want the he to crush his head. And you read that we have David versus Goliath. He has Babylonians against Jerusalem. He's trying to get rid of the he. And he has Nebuchadnezzar against Daniel. Then up to the night of Jesus after he was born, we have Herod, Herod killing two-year-old boys and under to try to get rid of the he. As you read the Bible, you discover that Satan's plan is to destroy what God has planned. And God's plan is to bring people that were banished from the garden to be brought into the beauty and the wonder and enjoyment of forgiveness 
instead of shame. He wants to show you intimacy. He doesn't want you to have isolation. He wants you to have wholeness instead of brokenness. So as Satan tries to destroy the he, on that night in Bethlehem, we get into the New Testament now. The subplot now is this, what's called the second Adam. See, the first Adam screwed up royally in the Garden of Eden. The second Adam, or Jesus, triumphantly succeeded in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, the reason is Jesus doesn't listen to the serpent when the serpent whispers to him. He listens to God. The first Adam did not. He listens to God and he goes to the cross. He triumphs and he crushes the head of Satan. Jesus promises to restore it all. He's preparing a place for us, this new heaven and new earth where there's not going to be any sin. There's not going to be any sorrow. There's not going to be any cancer. There's not going to be anything but beauty, no death, and wholeness. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 say, But when that set time had fully come, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. The story of Christmas, church, is about God fulfilling his promises. The first promise is before Jesus came to the manger. It's before all the prophets were talking about, you know, Jesus. It was before even the first sin occurred. The promise that I'm talking about comes in Genesis 2, verses 17. Verse 17, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. Great Christmas promise. Could get a Hallmark card for that, right? (laughs) But that promise proved true now that sin entered the world, that we will surely die. It's a promise for Adam and Eve because they rebelled, and it's a promise for us also. And that promise, Paul mentions it in Romans 5, 12. He says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all people because all have sinned. Well, that first promise hits us in the gut. You know, we're like, Gee. you know, that's pretty rough. You know, this is, they just messed up once. But no, it was a, they directly disobeyed God. But we celebrate Christmas of another promise God has made. That there would become an heir to Eve. And he would deal that fatal blow to Satan. And what's that second promise? Matthew 1, 21. She will give birth to a son, and you're to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That's the Christmas story, church. You have to understand when this baby came in the manger, why he came to earth in the first place. What had happened? He's to destroy this works of the devil. I'm going to close this sermon with a picture. And it's a picture called Mary Consoles Eve. It's by Grace Remington. But I want you to look at that picture. I'm going to give you 20 seconds and not talk. Just look at it and see what you notice about it in the picture. 
See, when I see this picture that I'm staring at, I see, I see on the surface the whole story. I see creation. I see the fall. And I see redemption told by two women. And I, I love that redemption moment where Mary is reaching back in the past to touch her sister. But church, the longer I look at this picture and the more I stare at this picture, the more raw it becomes to me. Why? Because I find myself in that picture. And that can be so vulnerable when you see that. When you look at Eve in this picture, look at her posture. I see exhaustion. I see her weighed down. Look at her shoulders. They're, they're just slumped down. Her head is bent. She can't look up. And she's naked. And she's ashamed of it because she's covering her nakedness with her hair. And I'm kind of overwhelmingly sad for this picture because I know how heavy shame can feel. Maybe some of you do too. I know all too well how to carry shame and try to pretend that nobody's going to see it, but they always do. I'm hardest hit by the fact in this picture, though, that she's still clutching that stupid piece of fruit. I'm, I want to yell in that picture, let it go, throw it down. But look, she's clutching it to her chest, almost like a woman does, like she's protecting. A woman does like nursing a baby. It's a protective gesture. She's nursing her sin. And she's nursing her failures, so to speak. She's afraid to put them down. Maybe she can't put them down. I've been there too, clutching my sin. Because my sin, sometimes it feels like all I have left. Have you ever been there, church? But here's what I would tell Eve. If I could go into this picture, I would tell her that God's grace is enough for you. Your identity doesn't have to be in that cursed piece of fruit that you're clutching. Christmas is coming. That's what I would tell Eve, and I think that's what Mary is saying in this picture. <laughs> She's not ripping the fruit out of her hand. She's not finger-wagging at her and scolding Mary. Mary doesn't even seem to be troubled or bothered by the fact that she's holding on to that sin. She's comforting Eve with one hand. Look at it up on her shoulder, her cheek. And she looks at Eve and she smiles. She has that smile that, you know, that smile that knows something. Because we, you know, your kids, they ask for something for Christmas and we hide it from them on Christmas Day and they, they think they didn't get it, but we smile because we know something. It's a smile that isn't afraid that Eve has royally screwed things up. Mary knows that Eve has broken something very special, very beautiful. But Mary, she doesn't care because she feels redemption inside of her body the way Eve feels shame inside of hers. She says, Eve, you're carrying shame in your body 
but I'm carrying salvation in mind. Mary, and did you get this part of the picture? I find this awesome. Mary is so intent on caring with, for Eve that she, she doesn't even notice that she's crushing the head of Satan. Satan's under her heel. Do you see it? Without even looking down, she's stepping on evil and crushing it. And just like Eve, she's clutching that apple. She's holding on to her sin. But also notice that evil is clutching on to her. Church, sin is persuasive. Evil wraps its way around us. And so, as well as me, we might find ourselves in this drawing too. Sin wraps itself around us, choking the life out of us. And the one who's come to bring us life, eternal, like in this picture, reaches out to us. Church, Advent isn't about our goodness. Advent is a story of people who wouldn't let go of their sin. And a God who came for us anyways. Advent is Eve clutching onto her sin, you clutching onto your sin, and me clutching onto my sin. And Advent is about Mary bringing Jesus to redeem her and us anyways. Church, will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you pursue after us. I think those times, just from that poem, Footprints in the Sand, the times that we think you've left us because we only see one set of tracks, those are the times that you are carrying us. We thank you for those times that we think you're not near, but you're chasing right after us. And it's no matter how far we have rebelled, no far how we, far we've strayed, you come after us anyways. We can be clutching onto our sins, Father, and you say, I'm still coming after you. I still love you. Your promise still stands, Father. Many, many years, your promise still stands for us. That night in Bethlehem that you sent your son, it's to destroy these works that we're clutching onto and give us redemption. Give us this new life inside that someday when you call us home and say, well done, there's not going to be this, this sin anymore. There's not going to be sorrow, cancer, sickness, but life. Lord, I thank you for sending us your son and crushing the head of Satan. Remind us that when he tries to whisper in our ears that we just have to, we don't have to talk to him. We just say a couple words to him. Get away. Because you're all we need. And your grace is sufficient enough for us. Your promise still stands. We ask this in Jesus' name.